From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, September 29th. The Bureau of Land Management will close over 300 miles of roads in the Labyrinth Canyon Gemini Bridges area to off-highway vehicles. They made their decision public on Thursday with the release of a new travel management plan for the area north of Moab. Laura Peterson is a staff attorney for the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. What we have here is a travel plan that finally restores solitude to Labyrinth Canyon, protects cultural sites, protects natural resources, while also balancing motorized and non-motorized recreation. Peterson says staff at SUA are pleased with the outcome of what became a years-long process. The BLM was required to update this travel management plan along with others across the state as part of a settlement agreement with the Wilderness Advocacy Organization. The practical reality is that the BLM, as other federal agencies, when they're designating motorized vehicle routes, they have an affirmative obligation to minimize the impacts of natural and cultural resources. And they didn't do that in their prior plan, and they have done that here. Several Green River side canyons will close to motorized travel, including Hajo Canyon and Ten Mile Wash. Siwa advocated for these closures, saying it will help protect riparian areas as well as quiet and scenic values for river recreation. From our perspective, what is really important here is doing justice to the Labyrinth Canyon corridor and those side canyons. Over 700 miles of roads remain open to OHVs throughout the year in the Labyrinth Canyon Gemini Bridges area. The BLM says that upwards of 90 percent of the traditional Jeep Safari routes also remain open. Jacques Hadler, chair of the Grand County Commission, calls the plan a balance between recreation interests and riparian protection. He applauded what he called the BLM's careful, thoughtful work because as visitation to the Moab area increases, planning technology becomes increasingly difficult. Not everyone is pleased with the BLM's travel management plan. Motorized recreation advocacy group Blue Ribbon Coalition posted on social media shortly after its release, calling it a, quote, terrible decision. In the post, they say they will be challenging the plan in, quote, all the ways that we can. The BLM's Canyon Country District received over 10,000 comments during the public comment period for the Gemini Bridges Labyrinth Canyon Travel Management Plan. Their decision and maps are posted on the BLM's e-planning website. Find links in the show notes of today's news. The Southeast Utah Group of National Parks received an influx of funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law to focus on riparian restoration. There's $60,000 for local projects, which is good news for parks ecologist Liz Ballinger. The lion's share of it is going to be focused on riparian restoration in the parks. Um, And this is going to be rolled out on the ground in in some different ways. Um, We're going to be doing invasive species removal. So a big invader, of course, is tamarisk in our riparian zones. And we've already been doing some tamarisk removal with some of this funding. Uh, Just a week or two ago, we were at Cabin Bottom on the Green River, opening up uh, some new areas with tamarisk removal. We expect people might even use some of the area that we've removed tamarisk for camping. So it benefits visitors as well. (laughs) Paying attention to tamarisk is part of your job. It is, yeah. In our riparian areas. Sure. It's only one, though, of course. 
talking about what happens then after tamarisk removal. Mm-hmm. A lot of times there's secondary invasions that can come behind it. You know, we have um, a lot of annual invasives, Russian thistle, five-hook bassia. Those are some of the big ones that will sometimes come in and invade in the tamarisk removal areas, or Russian knapweed. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a perennial plant that will come in and invade. So, you know, we have to take care of a lot of those as well. And then we're trying to get, of course, native plants going in those areas. Sometimes, like I said, coyote willow or other riparian species will come in naturally, mm-hmm. but a lot of times we have to come in with seeds or plantings in some case. You know, we're doing um, at high water. We'll like to do long stem plantings of cottonwoods or willows or box elder, um, and we want to try some other woody species as well out there uh, in some of our restoration areas. So, yeah, the idea at high water is you plant them deep, and then as the river will recede, mm-hmm. then the roots, they're fast growing species, those roots will kind of follow the water table down. So this was a really great year to do that. And being able to get an infusion of riparian restoration money during a high water year was actually really great timing. Like a flood of money and a flood of water. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Good way to put it, I guess. Also, last year, the Southeast Utah Group received some bipartisan infrastructure law money to do a multi-park native seed contract Mm -hmm. at a regional plant center. So how is that factoring in? Well, native seed is obviously really important for us to be able to restore ecosystems you know and for instance after tamarisk removal or uh, for maybe some of our areas that are degraded grasslands that still haven't recovered even though livestock have been removed you know we still need, we need seed for these areas um, and so being able to collect wild seed in the park and then send it to a plant material center that has the capacity to do a big grow out for us, meaning like produce lots of seed of species that we need. And we call them kind of our workhorse restoration species, maybe. And we need to have a lot of that in order to be able to restore areas. Um, yeah, and I just learned that there's going to be additional expansion of that um, through additional uh, bipartisan infrastructure law and it's this is actually going to be focused more towards wildfire areas and restoration and I think our role in that is going to be mostly um, actually having seed collectors come do some collection within our parks mm-hmm. to then provide seed for areas uh, that are maybe burned and need restoration. One thing that we're looking at is seed transfer zones and in the face of climate change, our parks, some of them being you know lower, hotter areas compared mm-hmm. to maybe areas outside the park that are burning, and we're going to be able to provide some of the genetic material to then that's potentially more adapted to um, future climate regimes. And we're actually doing this kind of on a a small scale just within our own parks. I got permission a few years ago to be able to start collecting seed outside the parks. And so, you know, I'll be, I'll collect along roadsides in Grand County or, you know, areas that are lower, therefore, and hotter and drier than arches, say. And so we're doing that already and bringing that It'll be the same species, but genetic stock that might be a little better adapted to the future climate into our parks. You're looking at plants that are literally the same species, but just in a different location that are Mm -hmm. potentially growing well. Yeah, and we have scientists that are looking at some of these factors of maybe what makes some species better adapted or you know we uh, have a there's a scientist looking at it's called hot stipa like Indian rice grass basically that seems to grow really really well and produce really well stipa is the genus even though it's growing in some really hot dry areas Mm -hmm. and so it's like what is it about maybe the genetics of this population and is this going to maybe be a good 
population to then send to a place like the Plant Materials Center in Colorado to grow out and produce lots of it because it'll be maybe well adapted. Related to this influx of funding, what, like, how do you feel as someone who works in riparian zones and also in restoration work? Mm-hmm. How is that making you feel? Well, I have to say it, I'm really excited about it and it's giving me a really good feeling because generally the kind of funding that I'm getting, I'm needing to always tie projects to visitor use, not that that, you know, that's obviously really important, or infrastructure that we're maintaining in the parks. You know, I get mm-hmm. money, for instance, uh, to trim back encroaching vegetation mm-hmm. from trails to do, you know, and this, and we'll kind of be sneaking in a little restoration work along the way. But to actually have pots of money that it, it wasn't like hugely competitive to be able to get this, there was like enough money to go around for a lot of parks restoration needs. And so it was really exciting to be able to put in proposals for this and actually get the funding that is really for restoration. Liz Ballinger, ecologist and vegetation program lead for the Southeast Utah Group of National Parks. As part of this recent funding, Park Service staff will also coordinate with tribes to restore several culturally significant springs in Hovenweep National Monument. A new survey of farmers and ranchers that use water from the Colorado River shows they're concerned about water shortages. As Alex Hager with our partners at KUNC reports, those water users also trust local agencies over the state and federal level to work with them on the issue. The Western Landowners Alliance and University of Wyoming pulled more than 1,000 irrigators in the region. About 70% of them said they're already working to respond to water shortages, but the vast majority aren't aware of or aren't using programs that would pay them to use less. Drew Bennett is one of the study's authors. If we have an increase in awareness, that might translate into greater participation, you know, an opportunity for, for solutions in the basin. Getting the buy-in of growers will be pivotal to solving the Colorado River crisis, since agriculture uses about 80% of the river's water. I'm Alex Hager. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Moab is expected to lose its commercial air service to Salt Lake City within the next few months. But Redtail Air Adventures will start offering flights to the capital on a smaller eight-passenger plane. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent recently took a flight with Redtail, and she speaks with Emily Arnson about what travelers can expect. You had the honor of going on a Redtail flight to Salt Lake City recently. Um, Do you want to tell us about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of a test slash the inaugural flight uh, for Redtail's upcoming service uh, between Moab and Salt Lake City. Um, That'll start potentially as soon as Sunday, but potentially a few months later. I think they're still working out the start date for this uh, new round trip flight. Okay, and is that because the contract with SkyWest got continued until the end of the year? Yes, exactly. Um, So as folks may know, this service is uh, coming as Moab's commercial air service is expected to change. Right now we're served by SkyWest, and that's they're the ones who provide um, flights to Salt Lake City. And that contract was recently extended until December 31st, which means we should have the Salt Lake City flights through kind of end of November-ish. Those are the government subsidized flights through... Yes, essential air service. Okay, through essential air service. Will the Red Tail flight 
flights be covered under essential air service? No. So the red tail flights are actually completely separate from that. And red tail stepped in with this proposal after the expected new provider of commercial air service was only going to provide a connection to Phoenix, not to Salt Lake City anymore. And there was a lot of concern about, you know, locals needing access to the state capital, whether that's for economic development, um, for medical reasons, or to connect with politicians, you know, especially through the general general session that the legislature has. So Red Tail stepped in with this offer. Um, it's going to be twice weekly round trip flights, and it won't be through Essential Air Service. So you actually won't go through a TSA for these flights. And you do land at the Salt Lake City Airport, but not in like the main terminal. Hmm. What are some of the other differences between this flight and the previous flight or the flight that is still going to Salt Lake City? Totally. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's not done. There's like a code share agreement right now with our Salt Lake City flights. So when you fly to Salt Lake, I think it's through Delta. Um, and, you know, you already go through TSA and you're on like kind of a standard um, plane with like 30 or 50 seats or something like that. Uh, Red Tail, you are on a 10 seater airplane with room for eight or nine passengers. So it's much smaller. Um, you don't go through TSA, you land at this kind of separate part of the airport that you know, and you can still take a shuttle to the main terminal if you have a connecting flight. Um, but it's just like a lot, a lot smaller. Uh, it's a really cool flight, though. Um, I was worried about turbulence being on a small plane, but it was actually very smooth. Okay. Um, and yeah, it was a very enjoyable experience. And you can still bring luggage. There are some differences, like there's no bathroom on the plane, but you can still bring luggage and things like that. So just small differences. Yeah. How long is the flight? Just about an hour. Okay. And can you bring carry-on luggage? Um, you can bring luggage. There isn't really like, there aren't overhead bins the way there are in those like kind of typical larger planes. There's actually, you can bring kind of a personal item with you on board. And then there's a luggage hold underneath where you'll put your like regular bags if you do have them. Um, but I do know that uh, Randy Martin, who's the director of business operations at Redtail, told me they're kind of primarily marketing this to folks whose final destination is Salt Lake, like people who need to go up there for like a day to uh, see some people or, or make some appointments. Um, of course, you still can use it as a connecting flight thing, but that's not the sort of primary aim or the primary populace this is marketed to. Okay. And do you know how much the cost of the flights are going to be? Yes, they will be 150 each way or 300 round trip. And that's a set price? That is a set price. Um, I know they're in the contract with Grand County. There is some maneuverability in case like fuel prices skyrocket, um, but hopefully that won't happen. So right now they're, they're set at 150 slash 300. And that price is set because the county is in part funding this program? Yes. Yeah. So the county's funding it. I think it's about a 50% funding right now, $95,000. That was, uh, that came out of the economic diversification funding uh, that the county had to get rid of, if folks remember, before July 1st, when that money was going to become essentially obsolete. Uh, so they funded this uh, about halfway, and Red Tail, if they start making profit off the program, they'll actually start reimbursing Grand County up to their original investment, and that money would go into a revolving loan fund for local businesses, which would be really cool. Okay. Do they know how long they're going to be providing services? Yeah, the contract is for a year. Um, you know, I'd be curious to see if there would be talk of potential extension after this. Um, of course, we don't have economic di that economic diversification pot of money anymore. So they'd have to find county funding some other way if they did want county funding. But right now the contract is for a year. I should also mention uh, one very cool thing about this these new flights is that you only have to get to the terminal like 15 minutes before departure. It's very fast, very fast boarding process. And the expected schedule will be a flight out of Moab to Salt Lake leaving around 9 a.m. ish in the morning. And then the flight from Salt Lake back to Moab will be probably 4 or 5 p.m. in the winter and then maybe as late as 6 p.m. in the summer. Um, and those will be, I think the plan is for Tuesdays and Thursdays right now. Great. Okay, what else happened this week that you want to talk about? 
Yeah, uh, this week was also the beginning um, of a big housing series I'll be launching into this fall about the, the nexus of housing policy and then the dynamics between local and state governments. Okay, so this is a really big and complicated topic. And this is something that's been going on for kind of a while, correct? Definitely. I okay. feel like it's one of those topics that pops up in so many articles, like kind of tangentially. But I, at least, and I don't think the TI has ever like just delved into this uh, concept on its own. Mm-hmm. So it's my understanding that this is about Moab City trying to create opportunities for workforce housing um, and private companies who lobby the state government sort of trying to interfere with that and prevent that from happening. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what the first iteration is about. So I kind of open up this series by talking about the AEH ordinance that the uh, city council passed last year. Uh, Folks remember they were on the verge of passing this ordinance that would require a certain amount of workforce housing in certain zones. Uh, And they got this uh, last minute backlash from property rights um, and home builders groups that had connections to the state legislature. You know, there were email threats with um, legislators CC'd, for example. Um, And the city council actually backed off and entered several months of negotiation and ended up passing a revised ordinance. But I start out with this story because I think it illustrates a lot of the the trends that I'll be delving into down the line. Okay, so what was the city hoping to achieve? And then what ultimately ended up happening. Yeah, so they were hoping the original ordinance would have set aside 42.5% of units in new developments in the R3 and R4 zones, which are multifamily and manufactured housing zones. Uh, 42.5% of new units in developments in those zones would be restricted for occupancy by members of the local workforce. So it wasn't an affordability thing. It wasn't income restricted. You just needed to have a job locally. Uh, So in that way, it kind of mirrors the county's uh, high density housing overlay. Um, Some things that shifted after negotiations is that percentage was brought down to 33. That was probably the biggest difference. Uh, There were some relaxations the city made on um, parking and height of buildings for the the relevant developments to make it a little easier for projects to pencil for developers. Um, And then there was also a parachute clause added. So if these workforce restricted units sit on the market for like 120 days and you know, they're not getting rented or they're not getting sold, then that deed restriction or whatever the, the policy is, the mechanism actually rolls back and doesn't exist anymore, hmm. you know, just to prevent the those units from sitting empty. So that's, yeah, an aptly named parachute clause. Okay, so it didn't eliminate sort of what the city was trying to do. It just reduced it maybe by, by a little bit. And, mm-hmm. But then who are the people who are opposed to this? Are they developers? Yeah, I think developer interest groups, you know, many of the members of whom are developers themselves. So the organizations that ended up in negotiation were the Utah Property Rights Coalition, the Utah Home Builders Association, the Utah Association of Realtors as well. Um, And I spoke with a representative from the Home Builders Association about it. Okay. And those are all kind of lobbyist groups? Yep. And they have a vested interest in the Moab real estate market? Yeah, absolutely. And there was actually, it was really interesting Interesting. Um, Ross Ford, who's an executive officer of the Home Builders Association, told me one of their biggest concerns was actually not necessarily the ordinance's impact in Moab, but the possibility that other municipalities across the state would adopt similar legislation. So they were worried it was their worry was almost more of a statewide concern about like, what if this spreads everywhere? You know, could that hinder hinder development, hinder the development of housing, which was their concern. They're worried that it might reduce the amount of housing developments that are made because there is this 
mandate that you have to provide housing for a certain population of people within the community? Yeah. So I think, yeah, the underlying concern is that this isn't actually going to work, right? It's mm-hmm. just going to hinder developers from doing anything because it's not, the projects won't pencil for them anymore. Um, so it's actually just going to stop housing development when there should be a, a more, what he was saying was a more market-based solution, like increasing density or things like that without mm-hmm. having restrictions. Um, that was uh, Mr. Ford's perspective and the perspective of, I think, several of these groups. These lobbyists and these developers, they want those properties to be available for second homeowners because if it's not workforce housing, like who's living in a place and not working in a place? It's just people who have second homes or like who else would that be? I guess remote workers as well. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Or or folks who maybe own businesses elsewhere. Um, Yeah. Yeah. We didn't get into that too much. (laughs) Okay. So there was sort of a, was it an, an implicit or an explicit threat that the city received about passing this ordinance? Probably somewhere in the middle. I um, I never got the specific verbiage from the email thread, but you know, I spoke with uh, Carly Castle, who's the Moab City Manager, and Corey Shirtleff, who's the uh, Director of Planning and Zoning there. And they said it was something along the lines of like, it would be in the city's best interest not to pass this ordinance. And if you do, you will be preempted by the state legislature, or you can expect to see legislation that could preempt you. So I guess it was a pretty, pretty direct threat. Um, and they received it via email, I think the same day they were set to vote. So the state was going to pass legislation that would prohibit this if the city had gone through with their ordinance. That was the concern, yeah. Okay, yeah. but the but then they went through with something that was only the difference of 42%, 42.5% and 33% or something? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting. I spoke with Joette Langanese, uh, the mayor. She was also directly involved in negotiations along with Castle and, and Shirtliff, I believe. Um, and she said, you know, the... She thinks the benefit of those negotiations was not just the concessions that the city did make, but also just like that act of working with people and like being reasonable and having like heads come together. Um, she thinks that that, you know, helped build bridges between city officials and folks from these advocacy groups. And certainly uh, Ross Ford from the Home Builders Association did praise the city's efforts during negotiations. You know, he said, like, we still disagree with the philosophy behind this ordinance, but, you know, the city and city officials were very reasonable and very professional to work with. So I think it was that act of building bridges bridges, um, metaphorically as, as well, that may have staved off a potential preemption of the ordinance. Mm. And I do want to say also that on that point of having part of the reason I wanted to highlight the AEH is because I think there was a very positive, you know, depending on your outlook, a positive outcome here, or at least like a successful outcome for the city. Um, and I do think, you know, there are instances in which the city slash county and the state have worked together well. And I want to highlight those in the series and understand, you know, what the why the success happened and how we can replicate that. So I don't mean to be like, completely doom and gloom or, or just finger pointing here. I want to, you know, identify problems and then the solutions that have emerged and, and try to make those solutions a bigger, you know, slice of the pie, essentially. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward into delving into that more as well. Yeah, it seems like this was still successful. It's only a little bit different than their original proposal. Totally. And the negotiations were successful. And so far, I mean, the ordinance survived one general session, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So this is part of a larger series that you're going to be working on. Yeah. Three more installments. Three more installments. Okay, cool. Looking forward to that. And then something else you wanted to talk about is an event coming up soon for reproductive rights. Yes, yes. There will be an event on October 7th at Old City Park, an evening with uh, Emily Scott Robinson, who is a folk singer. And that event has a suggested donation and it benefits uh, the Utah Abortion Fund. So it's being put on by a local reproductive rights group called the Moab Abortion and Reproductive Rights Network. 
Moab Abortion and Reproductive Rights, Rights Network. Network. Okay. MARN. If you MARN. So what else does MARN do in the community? Like, can you go to them if you're having issues or need assistance, need medical help? So MARN doesn't provide kind of direct support in, in most cases uh, for abortion or reproductive rights, but folks are welcome to email them with questions about, you know, the legality of abortion right now in Utah or what to do if, if you need an abortion or have other kind of reproductive health or writes questions and they can direct you to other resources, uh, such as the Utah Abortion Fund, which does provide direct support to folks uh, seeking, you know, safe abortions. Um, In addition, MARN's broader uh, mission right now is also to just like spread awareness and maintain a community conversation around reproductive rights in Moab. Um, It uh, was founded last year after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Okay. Yeah. And I think also, if you need Plan B or contraception, you can also go to them. Right? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. They have uh, reproductive health kits with contraception, yeah, Plan B, um, things like that, and they have that at all of their events. So this event on October seventh, they will also have those kits available for free. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. More stories can be found at MoabTimes.com. Utah Raptor State Park broke ground this week. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News speaks with Emily Arnson about construction plans for the new park just a few miles north of Moab. So on Monday, September 25th, ground was officially broken at the Utah Raptor State Park. What does it mean to break ground? Are they making new trails, building new buildings? What's going on out there? Yeah, so it basically means that all of the construction plans are finalized. And so this has been kind of in the works for a really long time. And it was officially designated by the state legislature in 2021. So this has been like two years in the works going back and forth with these plans of like, what's the visitor center going to look like? Where's the campground going to go? One of the biggest things was getting water. Like how is the park going to be able to get safe water that people can drink and use. Um, But yeah, so all of those are finalized. And so they're able to start building everything. Cool. How are they going to get water there? Yeah, so there's going to be like a big water tank. Um, Mm. And it was mostly just figuring out where to put the tank. Okay. What else is going to be there? What kinds of facilities? Yeah, so there will be a campground with 60 full hookup sites and 30 tent and car sites. Um, So the Utah Raptor State Park is going to be at the site of the current Dalton Wells and Willow Springs campgrounds. So if people have been there recently, um, they'll have seen that they're charging for camping there. But soon it'll be this big official campground um, and there's going to be housing for park employees There will be a ton of trails, so there will be like hiking trails and motorized trails, like single track for motorcycles, as well as some biking trails. And then there will be a visitor center that will have displays on the park's history. So it's called Utah Raptor State Park because the first fossils of the Utah Raptor were found there. So there will be a full-size replica of this skeleton and also maps and photographs of the historical site of a civilian conservation corps camp that was later in World War II used as a Japanese isolation center. Oh, okay. Do they know when the park is going to open? Yeah, so we also heard from Jeff Rasmussen, who's the director of all Utah State Parks, and he said he's looking forward to hopefully seeing everyone in about a year to cut the ribbon on this new facility. Um, And he also mentioned that this area has 
in his words, had a lot of trouble with too much use and very little development to accommodate it. Um, so he said he's really excited to see this area kind of have more facilities to be able to support these people who come there already for, to like recreate on the trails or to explore the paleontology. Hmm. Well, has anyone said or criticized that it's going to bring in more motorized vehicle use to this area? Yeah, that hasn't been a huge um, criticism yet. I think mostly people are really excited about the paleontology and the history aspects of the state park. Yeah. Okay. What else happened this week that you want to talk about? Yeah. So also this week, I chatted with Tom Till, who is a local landscape photographer, and people will probably recognize that name because of the Tom Till Gallery that's on Main Street. It's been on Main Street since 1988. But at the end of November, it'll close because Tom himself is finally retiring. Can you tell us about his career as a photographer? Yeah, he bought his first camera in 1977, and he had these kind of like big make-or-break moments. And so the first one came in 1980 when an image he captured of the chocolate drops in Canyonlands appeared in the Utah Travel Council calendar. And so his images would appear in that calendar every subsequent year until 2015. Was it the same image of the chocolate drops? Different images. Oh, different images. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then in 1985, he kind of started doing environmental conservation with his images. So um, that year, his images helped halt the consideration of a nuclear waste dump near Canyonlands. Do you know what those photos were that helped halt that waste dump? Yeah, his images, um, he really just wanted to portray the landscape as this like beautiful, pristine area that needed to be protected. Yeah, and he did something similar in 2003 when he was asked to capture aerial photos of the Moab uranium tailings area to show to Congress. So his images showed how close those tailings are to the Colorado River. So that those images helped gain funding for what would become the U.S. Department of Energy's um, Uranium Mill Tailings Remedial Action Project, which we know as UMTRA. Was he always trying to do conservation with his photography work? Yes, he was always trying to do environmental conservation. And he's trying to say in all of his images that he really loves the landscape. And so he's going to try to show it to people in the best way that he can, in the best light, at the best time of year, so that other people love it too. Nice. What is he going to do in retirement? He's mostly going to spend his time at home in Moab because he has traveled so much in his career and spent a lot of years where he was doing 300 days in the field. Um, so he's really just going to spend time in Moab and go on small hikes and maybe sometimes he'll go on hikes without his camera. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. More stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.